Sorry about that, brethren. I was hoping to use the camera on my iPhone, and when I was testing it, it worked. It's a much sharper image. Um, unfortunately, for some reason, it's not working now. So I'm going to have to continue to use my... Um, I'm going to have to continue to use my uh, laptop camera. So that's fine. We'll do that. And we're doing uh, if the book of Ephesians. And we are now in Ephesians chapter 1. And remember uh, what we said yesterday. And hopefully just give me confirmation that my sound level is, is working well here. Um, but what we said yesterday was that uh, we're commanded to rejoice here at the feast. And in Deuteronomy 16, verse 15, the command to ancient Israel, uh, seven days shall you keep a solemn feast unto the Lord your God in the place which the Lord shall choose. Because, let me just add this, because the Lord your God shall bless you in all your increase and in all the works of your hands. Therefore, you shall surely rejoice. So because the Lord was going to bless ancient Israel in their physical increase, in their harvest, and also in all the works of their hands, therefore they should surely rejoice. And much the way uh, Christ and, and the Apostle Paul and the, the rabbis would reason from the lesser to the greater, we can do the same, use the same rationale here. If ancient Israel was to rejoice because of their physical increase. And if ancient Israel was to rejoice because of the works of their hands, how much more should we, first fruits Israel, rejoice because of the spiritual blessings that we have received at the works of God's hands? That this is not, this is not the work of our hands that we've received these blessings, but the works of God's hands. So there's a far greater reason for us to rejoice and to re rejoice much more deeply than ancient Israel did. So with that as context and what we covered yesterday, let us get into Ephesians chapter one. And again, just looking for, okay, so thanks uh, John. I just saw um, our brother John say that everything's working there. Christine, oh, Christy, thank you. You can hear, perfect. Okay, so Ephesians one and verse one. Paul, Paulus, an apostle, one sent by Jesus Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. This, this is something that God orchestrated. To the saints which are at Ephesus. And we read the context yesterday of how, this, how he started this church uh, in uh, Ephesus and some of the challenges that were there in that very uh, wicked city, in that city of witchcraft. So now this, these called out um, group within that city, he's writing to them. And to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So it looks like this letter, although it was written to the saints in Ephesus, that he intended it to have a broader audience. And certainly, by extension, it is reaching us today. Grace be to you, the Greek charis, and peace, which is more of the Hebrew uh, greeting, shalom, from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this grace, there's this, this favor that is coming from God, and this shalom, again, this favor, this, this uh, a freedom from any worry by being in God. 
And this is something that God had intended for his people from the very beginning. Unfortunately, they rebelled. They uh, broke the covenant. They disobeyed and never experienced that shalom and that grace, that charis, as God had intended. But now this called out group, uh, Paul is saying that this grace and this peace should be upon us, them and us, from God our Father, from the top, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice there's no uh, mention here of the Holy Spirit as a third person in the Trinity. That just doesn't exist. The Holy Spirit is the power of God. And these two beings extend to us both grace and peace. Now he begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God is over Christ. He's the Father of Christ. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And places is in italics, it's italicized, to say that it's not there in the text. Uh, so somebody's adding it, hoping that it helps us uh, to understand better what is meant. And of course, these people who believe in, you know, we're going to die and go to heaven, uh, that, that's what they're believing in, it, it play, uh, the, this place called heaven. But let's take places out. And it's really uh, with all spiritual blessings in the epuraneous, uh, which is in the, in the spiritual dimension. So there's a spiritual dimension here. We're in the physical dimension, but there's a spiritual dimension. And blessed be the God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who have together blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly, in the spiritual dimension, in Christ. Now, if ancient Israel was to rejoice because of the increase in their harvest, that God blessed them with a physical increase by the works of their hands, how much more during these, this Feast of Tabernacles, how much more should we, as the first fruits of God, of God's harvest, rejoice because we've been blessed by God and by Christ with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly, in Christ, according as he has chosen us. Okay, now we're getting into something that we who are receiving all spirit, he's not holding anything back. We're receiving all spiritual blessings according as he has chosen us in him. So the, the blessings are in the spiritual dimension and they're in Christ according to the fact that he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now we're, 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 we're uh, wading into some very deep waters here. He's chosen us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, now this is getting really, really deep. And in the first century, second century, third century, fourth century, if we were converts to the church, and particularly if we were Greek philosophers, then we can go very deep and heavy into this. 
we can blow people's minds with our Socratic, Platonic, Aristotelian logic and just come up with this, this concept of predestination that basically I'm, I'm just so special that before the foundation of the world, God predestined me for this heavenly outcome. And because, you know, according to Aristotle, he's the first mover and, and nobody can change him, then we can go deep into this once saved, always saved with this Aristotelian logic because, hey, we're predestined. But this is coming from the Apostle Paul. It's not coming from Greek philosophers. It's coming from Rabbi Shaul, Paulus. We've got to ask ourselves the question, would this incredibly educated rabbi who had a full understanding of Torah and the prophets and the writings and the history of Israel, who then came to know Christ and Christ revealed to him how he is in all the scriptures and Christ revealed to him how to understand Torah and how to understand the prophets and the history of Israel. Would this rabbi then throw all of that away because now he's got a Gentile audience and just basically switch to Socrates, Plato and Aristotle to speak to the Gentile audience and come up with some new Greek philosophical concept that has a new choosing? Or would he help the Gentiles who have been grafted in to this covenant, would he help them to understand what they've been grafted into? I think the latter. I think the rabbi is trying to help the Gentiles understand what they've been grafted into. So if we put on this Hebrew mindset to say that we are receiving all of these spiritual blessings in the spiritual dimension, according as he has chosen us. Well, who did he choose? Who are his elect? Does he choose and then drop that choice and then choose again and then drop that choice and then choose again and then drop that choice? Or does he choose once from the foundation of the world, knowing everything that could happen and, and, and not allowing anything to frustrate his plan? I think there's only one choice. And so when the, the rabbi, when the apostle here is telling us that these blessings are in accordance with the fact that he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. And we know that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. So we know that he had a plan before creating Adam, before the foundation of the world. There was a plan. He knew he had a will of how he would create this being called man and also how he would save man, and that he would choose for himself a people that he would work through to bring redemption to all mankind. And so he has chosen Israel in him before the foundation of the world. There's, there's a, a set of people that he had masterminded in his plan. This people that today we call Israel were chosen from the foundation. There was a man, one man, that, the seed would, that, that, that this holy seed would come through this man. And these people would be set apart from the rest of mankind in order to bring this seed to mankind. And then through these people, bring redemption to mankind. So he has chosen us, that's Israel, in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. This is the plan from the foundation. That there would be a seed, 
a holy seed, a holy people, a people set apart for holy use, and that this people, despite their sinfulness, that there would be a way to present them before himself without blame. And all of this was designed before the first man was even created. And that's why the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. So Israel is God's firstborn. Israel is God's son. And this plan of having a people that would come from a man, that would be set apart and be adopted as, as his family, this was set from the foundation. This is the predestination. It's not that I, I'm just so special that no one can take salvation away from me. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that the plan for Israel as the holy set-apart people was set from the foundation of the world. And we have been grafted into this predestination, this predestined plan. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. This is so important. So let's just uh, bank that, that phrase, that all of this is according to the good pleasure of his will. Because we're gonna come, this is gonna come back. That he has a will, and it's his good pleasure to execute this will. And that's what this, that's what this predestination is about. That no matter what happens, he has a, a will, and it's, good, it's his good pleasure to bring about this predestined plan. Now, who are, the, who, who are these people that he has chosen? Let's go to the Torah, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people. Well, how many holy people are there? How many choices does God make? Is God promiscuous? God forbid. He covenants with one people, that's it. And he pre has, he's predestined that these people in the end will be victorious. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you, that is Israel, are a holy people that is set apart for holy use unto the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. This is what Rabbi Shaul, the Apostle Paulus, this is what he is bringing to light. He hasn't thrown out the Old Testament the way the um, Greek fathers, the Greco-Roman pagan Christian fathers, they throw out the Old Testament, they come to Ephesians 1, and they just make things up because they have no foundation. We learn that we read the scripture, everything is based in Torah. We always go back to Torah, then everything has to integrate with Torah. We have Isaiah as the ultimate switchboard. Isaiah captures the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So any understanding we have, we root it in Torah, we reconcile it with Isaiah, and it has to line up with Revelation. Torah, Isaiah, Revelation. Torah, Isaiah, Revelation. Everything that any understanding we have, if it doesn't line up with that, then whatever book we're reading, we, we, we don't have the right understanding. So here we are in Torah that the Lord your God has chosen Israel, one choice, to be a special people unto himself. And we understand now, this, is, this was before the foundation of the world. So it's not that something happened after God set the foundation of the earth, the world, that he got, he got caught off guard. He, he just wasn't expecting this. And so now he's got to come up with something new. Ditch the old plan, come up with a new one. 
No, from the very foundation, he, he had considered every eventuality. He had considered every possibility. And he set his plan in motion that no matter what, as he declared it, that's how it's going to happen. So the Lord your God has chosen you, that is Israel, to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. And that is to the benefit of all people. That he has chosen these people to benefit the rest of mankind. So we, this is a blessing. This is not something to be upset about. This is something to praise God for in his great wisdom. The Lord did not set his set. The Lord did not set. He's not frivolous. He's not promiscuous. He is faithful. The Lord did not faithfully set his love upon you, nor choose you. There's that word again. Because you were more in number than any people. In fact, you were the fewest of all people. You were, you were enslaved. You were nothing. And God chose you. Why? But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers. God doesn't need help. He's not desperate trying to keep his word. God declares his word, and then he keeps it. That's what makes him God. And so he, he loves Israel because he would keep the oath, this covenant that he entered into, which he had sworn unto your fathers, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So you guys were nothing, but God chose you to set you apart and to make you above all people because of the oath that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what we need to understand, that from, from Genesis 1, God is the God of all mankind. And he's the God of all mankind until Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, we sort of slam on the brakes, we make a sharp right turn, everybody off the bus except Abraham. And in Genesis 12, after this sharp right turn and everybody disembarks, God is no longer the God of all mankind. Beginning in Genesis 12, he's now the God of Abraham. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob forever. He will be known as the God of Israel forever. And that began in Genesis 12. He, he's not figuring this out as he goes along. Oh, what should I do now? This has been predestined. That he would, he would create mankind. It was obvious that mankind was no match for Satan. Mankind would fail. That's why the lamb had to be slain from the foundation of the earth. But the lamb, slain from the foundation of the earth, would come into the realm of mankind through mankind, through the, through the seed of Eve. And he prophesied that in Genesis 3. So there had to be a people that would become holy and set apart so that the holy seed could come through that people. And through that people, presented to the rest of mankind. God is not figuring this out as he goes along. This was predetermined and predestined before he created Adam. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord has said unto Abram, Get you out of your country, and from your kindred, and from your father's house, unto a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I'm not going to make great nations out of multiple people. 
I have now become in covenant relationship with you. And I will make your seed a great nation above all other peoples. And through that seed, bring salvation and redemption to mankind. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curses you. So we need to be very careful. We need to know who this seed is because we never want to be in a position where we're cursing this holy seed because God guarantees he will curse us. We want to be in a position that we are blessing this holy seed because God says he will bless them that bless this seed. He says, notice this, and in you, I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to set your seed above all the rest of mankind. And in your seed, in you, shall all families of the earth be blessed. So, so this, this plan from the foundation is for the benefit and the blessing of all mankind. Continuing in the Torah, Deuteronomy 10 and verse 14, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's, your God. He created the whole universe, the earth also, with all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had a delight in your fathers to love them, and he chose their seed. This is the choice. He doesn't choose, change his mind, choose again, choose, change, choose, no. This is the choice. He, he delighted in your fathers to love them, and he chose their seed, meaning he didn't choose anybody else's seed. This is who he's chosen. He chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. Is this just to, you know, annoy other people? No, we just read it. That in you, in his seed, shall all families of the earth be blessed, as it is to this day. Now in Amos 3 and verse 2, through the prophet Amos, he says, you only, this is Israel, this is the seed now. This is the seed. This is the chosen seed. These are the holy people. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. He doesn't know all the families. So the holy seed, which is Christ, will come through the holy seed, which is Israel. And that's why you see them, you know, and Judah specifically, you see them so careful in, in the, uh, uh, the genealogies because of the prophecy in Genesis 3. They knew that this Messiah is going to come through them, that they've been set apart. So here, Amos 3, verse 2, you only have I known this intimate intercourse, this intimate relationship is between the God of the universe and only this, this, this people, Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you, but you're the only ones that I know. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So when we understand this, that these are the people that have been chosen, but they are full of iniquity and they deserve great, great punishment. When we understand this, then when we come to the Apostle Paul's writing in Ephesians, where he says, grace, charis, and peace, shalom, be unto you. This is amazing that this curse of the covenant has been lifted through Christ, through the blood of Christ. It's the same covenant 
that is being renewed and the curses have been re replaced with the blessings because of Christ's redemption. So this family that's been selected is under curse. It's to be punished. But then Christ comes, same selection. He, God hasn't changed his mind. Oh, I chose Israel. Oh, but they were disobedient. So I threw them away. And then I chose the church. Oh, but they were disobedient. So I threw them away. And then I chose the Arabs. And according to the Arabs now, this is his final choice. Uh, because Arabs can do no wrong. And they're just beautiful, wonderful, per perfect people. Because Muhammad was just perfect. And so now finally God stops choosing. No, that's not the way it goes. There's no replacement theology. Because from the foundation of the world, this choice was made. And they have been predestined to be this people. They have, they have, they have come into, from Adam, from Abraham, entered into this covenant with God, then his seed have come into this predestined plan. Ephesians 1 verse 6. So all of this is happening. These, these spiritual blessings that we have inherited, this, this curse of the covenant that's been lifted, but the blessings, the full blessings of the covenant and the intention from the foundation of the world, all of this has come to us to the praise of the glory of his grace. <laughs> this is what we have to come to understand and why we're going to just rejoice during this feast. Because he has grace. There is a graciousness to God. There is this just, he's not, he's not a human being. If he was a human being, that's it, it's all over. You know, burn the whole earth and start all over again. But he's not human, he's God. And he's faithful to his word. And because of that, there is a grace that he bestows upon us, which is glorious. And by us coming into this grace, it brings praise to the glory of this grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. What is the beloved? The beloved is Israel. The beloved is the covenant. And through the glory of this grace, he has made us accepted now in the beloved. And when he's saying us, it's Israel, but there are now Gentiles that have also been accepted in this beloved. In whom, again, he says, of, of all the families of the earth, only Israel he is known. Israel is the beloved. And now we've been accepted into this beloved. In whom we have redemption through his blood. So again, we can throw out the Old Testament, and then suddenly the whole pagan Gentile world has redemption through his blood. Or we can say, no, this is a rabbi's teaching who now understands from Christ the Old Testament in its fullness and understands from the Old Testament that God had always planned a redemption for Israel and a new covenant relationship with Israel and Judah. And that unless we could destroy the sun and the moon, that we will never replace the covenant relationship that he has with Israel and Judah. So in, in whom now, in Christ, we have, we, Israel, have redemption and those grafted into Israel, because the redemption is only through Israel. We have redemption through his blood. So he came as the Holy One of Israel to redeem Israel, and through Israel, the set-apart people, to redeem the world. So in him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of sins. So he says, you only have I known. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquity. And now we have the removal of this, this, this iniquity because Christ took that upon himself so that we could escape it and have the blessings of the covenant. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. So this, this incredible grace, he is just bestowing it. There's nothing holding back now. He's not holding anything. All the spiritual blessings are coming down upon this first fruits covenant Israel. So wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. This is by design. He knows what he's doing. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will. So this is uh, Ephesus, full of the mysterious arts and the mystery Babylon religion. But he's made known unto us the mystery of his will. So he has a will, and this will of his brings him good pleasure. He's happy to do it, but nobody knows about it. And it was set from the foundation of the world. But now he's made known unto us the mystery of this will, according to his good pleasure, which he had purposed in himself. So there it is again. He has a will, and he has a good pleasure to carry out this will, and now he's made it known to us, although it is unknown to everybody else. It is a mystery. And, and because he's not holding any blessings back from us, he's bringing us into this mystery so that we can understand it according to the good pleasure which he has purposed in himself. He has purposed this in himself from the foundation of the world. And the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world because of this will, which he purposed in himself, and it's his good pleasure to carry it out. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might, and this is the feast of ingathering, and so here we're seeing this, this will of ingathering, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. This, this, is, this is the will, the good pleasure of his will, and this is the mystery that nobody understands, but he's making it known to us that here we have this good pleasure of his will from the foundation, and now we see Gentiles being brought into the good pleasure of his will, and now we're being told that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, eventually everything will be gathered in one. In Christ. So right now we're seeing some Gentiles being grafted into Israel, into one, so they're now one, but ultimately everything will be brought together in one in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Christ is the focal point. Christ is the central point of this plan from the foundation of the world, and we're now beginning to understand it. It's his good pleasure to carry this out, and he's making it known to us. And in the process of making it known to us, he's not holding back any spiritual blessing. He is pouring out all the spiritual blessings upon us. He says, in whom also, that is in Christ, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. 
being predestinated, there's that word again, where again we can reject the Old Testament and come up with, okay, Greek philosophy, this is Aristotle. This is the logic of Aristotle. Once he's chosen us, that's it. Once saved, always saved. Meanwhile, we saw in Ephesians 20, the dire warning that the Apostle Paul gave to the elders in Ephesus to say, I'm free from the blood of all men, but you men better watch your... you don't repent. So would this same Paul who gave such a, a dire warning to the elders of Ephesus now write to Ephesus saying, oh, once saved, always saved? Or would he tap into his deep knowledge of Torah, his deep knowledge of the prophets and the history to bring this Gentile church into the understanding of what, what the covenant is that they've been brought into? In whom also, I think you know the answer, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. Israel has an inheritance. In fact, Israel is the inheritance of God. And they're going to inherit the promised land and, and, and Jerusalem and all of this that goes with it. The, 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 the priesthood of all the nations. So now, in Christ, we have obtained this inheritance being predestinated. It was, it, somebody was going to fulfill this plan from the foundation of the world. And here we are, being grafted into it being predestinated according to, there it is again, the purpose of him. There's a plan and a purpose. Who works all things after the counsel of his own will. This is this mystery that we're coming to understand. That God has a will and he's come up with a plan or a counsel to carry out this will. And it's his good pleasure to execute this plan, to carry out his will according to his purpose laid from the foundation of the world. And we have now come into this plan. Now, let's understand this counsel of his will. Let's go to the prophets. Let's go to Isaiah. And again, second Isaiah uh, is in the archives. God willing, we'll cover the first Isaiah uh, shortly. But second Isaiah we did. Isaiah 40 to 66, which is sort of New Testament Isaiah. There's 66 chapters in Isaiah, 66 books in the Bible. 27 of them are in the New Testament, that's 2nd Isaiah. 39 Old Testament, that's 1st Isaiah. So 2nd Isaiah is in the archive. If you haven't seen that, please uh, go ahead and, and access that. And uh, even if we have, it's worthwhile to go back over these because as we study other books and then we come back, we have a deeper understanding. And then when we have a deeper understanding, we go and study other books, we have a deeper understanding of the other books. It's all interconnected. Isaiah 46 and verse 9, remember the former things of old. He's speaking to Israel. For I am God, and there is none else. How do I get this Israel? How do I get this into your head? I am God. Stop chasing other gods. There is no other God. I am God, and there's none else. I am God, and there is none like me. And what is it that makes this God unique? How do we know that this truly is God and the other gods are false? He tells us here in verse 10. I'm God and there's none like me. What makes me unique? I declare the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel, my plan, my design for the redemption of mankind, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. 
this is what the rabbi, this is what the apostle is accessing when he's writing to Ephesus to say there's a mystery here that we're being brought in to understand that there's a good pleasure of the counsel of his will and this is it. We see this here when, he's, when God is speaking to his people Israel saying stop chasing other gods. I'm the only God and what makes me unique is I declare and then I fulfill. So I have covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your fathers, and I will be the God of Jacob, I will be the God of Israel forever. And nothing can frustrate this. So we can't come to the New Testament now and say, oh, God made a promise, but he had no clue what he was doing. So we had to drop that promise and become a liar and come up with some other idea. No, we can now come into the New Testament safely, understanding that from the beginning, he declared how all of this was going to end. From the beginning, he declared how it was going to end. And so here we are. There's a counsel, there's a design, there's a plan, and he says it shall stand. Notwithstanding the efforts of Satan and the demonic host, notwithstanding the efforts of evil men, this counsel shall stand, and he will do all his pleasure. So this good pleasure that we're reading of in Ephesians 1 He's going to do it. He is doing it in us. Verse 12, Ephesians 1. That we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. So we are the first fruits of Israel who actually trust in Christ. Israel has never trusted in Christ. They've always turned their back on him. They've always slid back. He's constantly trying to work with them. And now he has a people who finally get it who are the first fruits of the new covenant, where he has now put his spirit in us so that it enables us to believe him like Abraham and to trust him like our father Abraham. And so here we are, Jew and Gentile alike, grafted in to these covenant, this covenant community and, in, and partaking in the renewed covenant which ultimately all Israel will partake in if they repent, that we should be to the praise of his glory. So there's that phrase again, that all of this, this, this will that he's carrying out, it ultimately uh, results in the praise of his glory. That as mankind comes to see what God has orchestrated from the very beginning, they will see the glory of his grace and they will all join us in praising the glory of his grace so that we should be the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. And God will be praised in Israel. He will be glorified in Israel. We are the first fruits of this praise. Verse 13, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. This is the good news that, that Gentiles can now participate in this, this divine plan of God. And, and Gentiles have come in and have also trusted, also. Meaning, you know, the Jews trusted first. They then, well, through Paul, took it to the Gentiles to be grafted in to this trust. In whom you also trusted after that you heard of the word of truth, the good news of your salvation. In whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So this Holy Spirit that we've been given it's the seed, it's the, it's the deposit, it's the down payment. Ultimately, 
our whole bodies will be changed into this pneumatic, this, this, this spiritual body. But now we have the down payment of this, this seal of promise, which is, here it is, which is the earnest or the down payment or the deposit of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So there's a purchased possession. There's a possession that he has purchased with his blood unto the praise of his glory. What is that possession? What is that possession that he's purchased with his blood? The, let's, let's, the rabbi would know the prophets. So let's go back to the prophets to try to understand what is the rabbi, Shaul, Apostle Paulus, what, what is he trying to tell us? This is a down payment of our inheritance. Who has the inheritance? Israel has the inheritance. But this is the down payment of it until the redemption of the purchased possession. So he came to earth and he shed his blood to purchase something. What did he purchase? Isaiah 49 and verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. Yeah, you know what? Rightly so. You brought this upon yourself because of all of your iniquity. So Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. They were in this intimate relationship and Zion betrayed. Zion committed whoredoms and adultery and broke the covenant. And so now they say, realize, okay, all of this tribulation has come upon us and God has forsaken us and he's forgotten us. God's answer, can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yeah, they may forget, yet will I not forget you? I'm, I'm entered into, I've entered into an eternal covenant with you. I won't forget you. Behold, I have graven you upon the palms of my hand. There is the purchase. There is the blood purchase. He came to earth to purchase something. What did he purchase? He purchased Israel. He purchased Israel with his own blood, and this was predestined. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the earth. Behold, I've graven you, Israel, upon the palms of my hands. Your walls, Zion's walls, are continually before me. The, because the plan from the beginning, this is, again, we just really have to drive this home. From the beginning, it was understood that Jerusalem would be the throne of God, the seat of God, the tabernacle. God would tabernacle with man from Jerusalem. So all of this was set from the foundation of the world. And that's what we need to fully, fully grasp and understand. He says, Zion's walls are continually before. Because when we go to the end, the new Jerusalem comes down. And the walls of Zion have 12 gates. Each gate with one of the names of Israel, one of the names of the tribes of Israel. And so the rest of mankind, when they come into the new Jerusalem, they will be assigned one of the tribes because these people have been set over, over, as a special people over the rest of mankind. And so from the beginning, this plan, this counsel of his will has been on his mind. And Zion says, oh, he's forgotten us. God says, uh, no, 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 no. Your walls, I have a plan. And your walls are continually before me. And here we are in the millennium. So there's going to be a, Jerus a restored Jerusalem so right now there's a violent Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that's completely degraded, and we're watching to see when the abomination that makes desolate is set up to completely uh, destroy and make desolate Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah. So there's, there's Jerusalem today. Then there will be Jerusalem through the millennium when Christ will return 
and cause Jerusalem to be restored and to be rebuilt and to be upgraded. And it's going to be spectacular. But that's not the new Jerusalem. That's the millennial Jerusalem. Then at the end of the thousand years, Satan will make one final push to try to destroy Jerusalem and the holy city and the people of God. He, the, the, those people will be completely vanquished immediately and Satan will be finally destroyed. And then after all of that, then the new Jerusalem will come down. And it will have this, the, the walls of Jerusalem. And this has been on God's mind from the foundation of the earth. In Isaiah 43, and verse 1, But now, thus says the Lord that created you, O Jacob, and he that formed you, O Israel. He doesn't say this to anybody else, only Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Christ came to earth to redeem Israel, and through Israel, the rest of mankind, each in his own order. For I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name, you are mine. I have chosen you, you're mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. We saw that as the uh, first time with Moses. But any trouble that comes upon Israel, God is promising Israel, I'll never forget you. I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you or overtake you. When you walk through the fire, and we know the great tribulation is just ahead of us now. We're waiting for this. When Israel goes through this great trip, it's the time of trouble such, no nation has ever seen this type of, this level of trouble. This nation of Jacob is going to see trouble the likes of which the world has never seen. But when they go through this time of great trouble, it's also a time when they'll be saved out of it. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. That when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. You will not. God says in Malachi 3, uh, I am the Lord. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not destroyed. I change. I'm the Lord. I don't change. That's why you sons of Jacob are not destroyed. Again, Greek philosophers get a hold of that and come up with Aristotelian logic to say that God, you know, he just never changes. He doesn't learn. He's the perfect, the unchanging, perfect, perfect God. And that's why, that's what that means. No. Just go to the Torah. All that means is God has entered a covenant and he never goes back on his word. I, I entered a covenant and I don't go back on my word. That's why you sons of Jacob are not destroyed. So we see the covenant in, in place here that even though Israel has to go through the fire, they will not be destroyed. Neither shall the flame kindle upon you. For I am the Lord your God forever. I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel. And we have to understand this. As, as the tribulation comes down upon this earth and comes down upon Jacob, somebody needs to be telling Jacob, do not fear, do not worry, only repent and turn to the Lord because he is the Holy One of Israel. He's the one that came to fulfill all the covenant with Israel. Everything that you see in Deuteronomy, Christ came and was very careful to, fulfill, to fulfill it perfectly. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Here's, here's the purchase. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for you. I, I, I will throw these Gentile nations into tribulation in order to take you out of the tribulation. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honorable 
and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Go back to Deuteronomy 30. Moses said this. Isaiah is just repeating what Moses said. Fear not, for I am with you. Somebody needs to tell Israel and Judah this. As we go through these great times of trouble, we need to understand the full counsel of God so that we can say, look, this is the counsel of God. It's his good pleasure to carry this out. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. And we see this in Matthew 24 when God says, you know, unless those days were shortened, no flesh, and specifically when we read it in context, no flesh of Judah, no flesh of Israel would survive because the whole design is to destroy these people. And yet God has chosen them. And he's saying, even though you go through the fire, you won't be destroyed. So God will cut these days short and then he will gather Israel from the four corners of the earth. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. So this is the, 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 the context that the rabbi would be bringing into light into the, Ephesians, the, the church at Ephesus and the other, the other Christians that he's writing to who have come into this renewed covenant, who are the first fruits of this renewed covenant. Verse 15, Therefore I also, or wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints. So, so they get it. They've received the Holy Spirit. The apostle hears of this. Because of this, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, he shares with them. It's not just, hey, I've mentioned you in my prayers. He actually shares with them now what he prays about. What is it that he's making mention of them as he, he hears of their love for the saints, of their acceptance of this great truth that they have been grafted into this covenant, and he's just thrilled. And he makes mention of them constantly, gives thanks and makes mention of them in his prayers. What does he pray? Here it is. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, so Jesus has a God, Jesus has somebody over him, and there's no trinity here. It's not that he's co-equal, Trinitarian formulaic, formulaic non, Greek philosophical nonsense. That's not at all what the Bible shows. It shows that Jesus has a God. There's one God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you, this is his prayer, that God may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So remember in Acts 20, sorry, Acts 19, that they came and they burned all of their books about the mysterious magical arts. They had a lot of knowledge of the mysteries of Babylon. And they were using this knowledge. And then Paul came and frustrated the demonic agenda by preaching the truth. And they came into this understanding and they burned all of that. They destroyed all of that knowledge. They forsook all of that nonsense, that demonic evil nonsense. And they embraced Christ. And now he's praying that may God give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. This is really important. If we, if we look here in Matthew 13, when Christ, Christ was asked by his disciples, why are you speaking to our fellow Jews in parables? 
why, why don't you speak to our fellow Jews plainly? And Christ answered, blessed are your eyes. So they, he, he cursed the Jews. He said, seeing they see not, hearing, hearing they hear not. And, and the heart of this people has grown dull. But blessed are your eyes, you're different, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And so the apostle now is praying that they come into this spirit of, of wisdom and revelation, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. This is the reverse of the curse that we see here Christ quoting in Matthew 13, which we find in Isaiah 6. That these people were cursed with blindness and deafness and arrogance until Jerusalem and the cities of Judah are destroyed with the abomination of desolation that at that point the curse would be lifted. But until then, there's no repentance available to them, with the, with the exception of those who accept Christ. And there the curse is lifted. And this is why in Revelation, Christ says to the church at Ephesus and to the, all seven churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the first fruits of Israel because Israel is deaf. And here Paul is praying that the eyes of our understanding be enlightened, that although Israel is deaf, dumb, and arrogant, and blind, that there's a first fruits Israel that can hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And there's a first fruits Israel that can see our understanding being enlightened. Why? That you may know what is the hope of his calling. So again, this is from the foundation of the world. This has all been predestined. This plan has been set in place. This counsel of his good pleasure, of the will of, of, of his will, has been put in place from the foundation of the world. And now Paul is praying that we have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that our eyes would be enlightened, that we may know what is the hope of his calling. Why did he call us? And what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This is what we must come to understand. And he's not holding anything back. And this is why we rejoice. And in addition to that, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward or toward us? Like this, this is something else. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly dimension, in the spiritual dimension. And now he wants, he's praying earnestly that we would come by, by the spirit of revelation and wisdom, that our eyes of enlightenment would be opened and, and, and we would see and come to understand what is not just the greatness of his power, but the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, these are people from the city of Ephesus who were surrounded by witchcraft surrounded by witches and warlocks and people who are going around saying a spirit has attached itself to you and you have no hope unless you come to me to exercise you. And we saw the sons of Sceva playing around with this and making money off people. But the spirit world, the demonic world, didn't even recognize them. They were, they were under the control of the demonic world. They were not giving any trouble to the demonic world, although they were going around exercising people because they were not withstanding and confronting and destroying the chief tool 
of the demonic world, which is deception, which is what Christ did, which is what Paul did, which is what the true church does. And as we go deeper into Ephesians, we're going to come to understand this adversarial relationship that the church must have with the demonic world. That the church is not the church if it does not have this adversarial relationship with the demonic world and all of the deception that comes through the demonic world. And so here, it's very important for Paul to understand that you don't need to go to men to help you achieve your salvation. You just need teachers who will help you to understand and access this exceeding greatness of his power, which he's not holding back. It's available to us who believe, and it's the same exceeding great power that was according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and then set him at his own right hand in the heavenly, in the epuranius, in that spiritual dimension. So here now, this power, imagine this, think about this. <clears throat> this power that God used to lift Christ. Christ was dead for three days and three nights. And God used this power to raise him from the dead and not just bring him back to life and put him on his feet on the earth, but to then lift him from there and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly, far above all principality and power. This is going to be very, very important. He's laying a foundation here that he's going to build upon through the rest of the book. So we've got to get this foundation so that when we read the rest of the book, we read it in the context of the foundation that he's laying. And so he's laying this foundation that there is an exceeding great power that he's not holding back from us. And, and Paul, Paul is praying earnestly that the church would come to understand the access that we have to this great power in a city full of witches and warlocks who are running around making money off people by making them afraid. And that's something that people don't understand. Witchcraft is about control. Witchcraft is about people reading things into your life that make you panic and make you fearful and allow them to exercise control over you. When I was a young man, I, I mentioned this to our brethren here in Ottawa, when I was a young man, I was a taxi driver. And this was very early in my, my spiritual awakening. And I had taken a, a woman, uh, a fare for this woman and dropped her off and she started to say she didn't have the money for the fare. And it was about 10 or $15, something like that. Uh, she didn't have the money for the fare, but she would barter with me. She was a palm reader. And, and, and if I was happy, I could come in and she would read my palm and not charge me. So I, I, I agreed. So I went in and she read my palm and she started seeing nice things and they were saying nice things. And then she looked at a certain line in my palm and her countenance changed. And she became very dramatic and started to, to fear for my life of something terrible that could happen to me or that would happen to me very soon and that I should come back and she could go deeper into it and give me potions and lotions and whatnot to escape this great trap. This is witchcraft. This is witchcraft to gain, to gain control. And the 50, all the books that these Ephesians came and they burned, they were reading these books to learn how to put fear into people. When you, when you study voodoo, it's about putting fear into people. They would, they would know the tree barks and the herbs that could paralyze people. 
and turn them into zombies and then you know, put some spell on them so that everybody else is terrified and pays them to avoid that happening to them. Witchcraft is about control and merchandising human beings. And it comes from the demonic world. So when people come and try to put witchcraft on you by trying to tell you in some way you're cursed, unless you come to them, this is witchcraft. And the Apostle Paul is saying he wants us to understand the power that we have in Christ. The power through the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, he's not holding that back. We have full access to that power. And when, Christ, when God raised Christ from the dead, he set him at his right hand, far above all principality and powers. Every demonic, Satan himself is nothing to Christ. And the, the, the Antichrist and the, the beast power, these kingdoms of the earth, are nothing to Christ because Christ has been set far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And that's the exact same teaching to, to, to the Philippians that he was found in fashion as a man and he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name and every knee will bow to Christ. And that same power that has done this for Christ when we follow him faithfully, even unto death, this same power, this is what we have access to. This is what is operating in our lives. And this is why the apostle wants us to rejoice. Verse 22, as we finish now. And he has put all things under his feet. This same Christ, this same power that has done all of this is available to you. Whatever you have going on in your life, you have this power. I have this power in Christ. And this is, this is the understanding he is praying earnestly that we will have and we will rejoice in the good pleasure of the counsel of his will to bring us into this. And he has put all things under Christ's feet and then gave him this same powerful Christ who is above all principalities and powers and dominions and every ruler. This same Christ he gave him to be the head over all things to the church. He's our head. This power, it's not just that we have access to him, he's our head. And he orchestrates. He's all things to the church, which is his body. We're his body. So the power that he has, he's working through his body, which is his body. The fullness of him that fills all in all. And so we'll conclude today as we get ready for chapter 2, God willing, tomorrow. But this is, this is an amazing letter that if we can just take some time to meditate upon it, we will rejoice and rejoice and rejoice. And, and as he said to the Philippians, and so I repeat to us now, rejoice in the Lord always. You have access. I, we have access. I have access. You have access. All First fruits Israel have access to this grace and the glory of this grace being, being grafted in to this predestined counsel of his will upon what is his good pleasure to carry it out. And he is not holding back any spiritual blessing. So if Israel was to rejoice for the physical blessing and the physical increase through the works of their hands, how much more should we rejoice as first fruits Israel whom he is not holding back any spiritual blessing 
that we have access to the, this, this exceeding great power with which he used to raise Christ and set Christ above every principality and power. And then that same Christ is our head. We are his body. What should we fear? We, we have the, the, the future is right there. Hold on, be strong, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. God bless you, brethren. Have a great feast, have a wonderful feast, and uh, remember, Jesus Christ is King, He's Lord, He's above all, and He's in us all. Have a great feast. <laughs>